0: Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well-being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co-host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self-awareness, deep connections, and science-based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello, and welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Laura Hayes. At LIW we truly believe that all aspects of well-being are important to optimizing our health and living more effective, more fulfilled lives. Today I'm thrilled to be talking with an expert in mental and emotional well-being. I'm joined by Juliet Cunley. Julia is a national board certified counselor and practicing mental health therapist. She's also a mental health and wellness consultant, speaker and writer. Juliet hosts her own podcast called Who You Callin' Crazy, and most recently has published a very informative, insightful, and very digestible book called Who You Callin' Crazy, The Journey from Stigma to Therapy. Juliet, welcome. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk with you and have you on the show. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your journey into this field. How did you decide to become a therapist and what drew you to that area of expertise? So
1: I am one of those people who Basically, always knew what I wanted to do. I first went to therapy probably around eight years old and just remember being very pulled to it, drawn to it, fascinated by it, and understood the benefits of it. And so I was in and out of therapy. You know, I still am in therapy, so my whole life. And so I always say, you know, I've been on both sides of the couch. I understand what it means to be a client, and it just felt like what I've always known I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to walk with people in their stories um, the same way that others had done for me. Uh, So I, you know, in early high school, I shadowed psychiatrists uh, just for fun, always looking for those opportunities to, to figure out what this field was like. And now, you know, about 12, 13 years into it, uh, it's, it still feels right. I still feel totally like humbled and honored that I get to do this and sit with
0: other humans in their um, and their stories. It's just, it's just the best and hard, but the best. <laughs> that's great. And I know our listeners can't see you like I can, but it's clear that you light up when you talk about it. And that's really special too. That's how you kind of know you're in the right place doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's it, there's the the part of it that's the job and then there's the part of it that has really taken off over the past several years about really making it a mission as well and so going beyond just like the one-on-one client work but really being an advocate for everyone talking about mental health and taking it seriously and understanding that you know we all have it and need to tend to it and all of that so this kind of feels like a almost like a second career, you know, this other part of it where I get to really
0: embrace that. And and that also lights me up. Well, that's a great segue to speaking about your book. I mentioned in the intro that you recently wrote this book called Who You Calling Crazy, The Journey from Stigma to Therapy. Mm-hmm. So tell me, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to start writing and getting all this on paper and what made you want to write this book?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I never kind of like how I always say, I'm not, I'm not gonna have a podcast. Then had a podcast. I'm not gonna write a book. Then <laughs> when you say kind of, I find my found myself saying the same things over and over, you know, and wanting desperately to be heard and have people receive it. And so a writing coach reached out, and it was just kind of the right timing, and said, "Yeah, let's get these words on paper." It made sense at the time because through the pandemic, we were you know we we're all talking about mental health differently. Finally there's still a long way to go on moving the the needle on stigma, but it is moving. We are talking about it much differently since going through that collective trauma. So that's what I wanted to jump on. I wanted to, to make that more than just a moment and really hope that we can keep that dialogue going. So it's written sort of to that person that's like, okay, I kind of feel it differently you know there's a little bit more access to talking about it what does that really mean for me and so it's really designed to take people from curiosity to action
0: and what was that process like for you I mean I can imagine writing a book is really introspective and you have to kind of go through a lot of your own stuff too when you're putting it out on paper what was that like for you
1: oh yeah um (laughs) Yes. Like I've told, I've told people it's this interesting combination of being really proud of having it out there and also feeling totally like a fraud and having some imposter syndrome for sure. So, but, but again, that's part of my whole, my whole shtick is that I'm a therapist who goes to therapy. I'm human first. And so I, I don't have a problem, you know, being open and honest about that and, and knowing that I have to practice what I preach too and working through that. And it's interesting is that people around me also had reactions to it. You know, I, I even say in the book that when I first told my mom, I, I was writing a book, she was like, shit, publish it when I'm dead, you know, immediately assuming it's about her. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, don't worry. That'll be, you know, it'll be the next one. But it, so it's just an interesting because it does take up so much time too. So, you know, my, my husband and my kids, everybody sort of had to be a part of the process too. And And, and it was an act of having to figure out time management and boundaries and, you know, a lot of therapeutic skills at play just to make it happen. Right.
0: So learned a lot yourself, I'm sure in that process. Well, it's interesting. You said I'm human first. I had a patient just on my last shift who uh, he had been given this pretty terrible diagnosis not too long ago, and it was all new to him. And he was feeling really overwhelmed by the whole thing and came in to see me for an acute problem. And he got really tearful about it. And he, he just sort of suddenly said, I'm not supposed to cry. It kind of the, almost that typical thing you hear about in movies. He said, I'm a Marine. And my dad always said, boys don't cry. And certainly Marines don't cry. And my first response to him was, well, sir, I know you're all of those things, but you're human first. And I find myself kind of having to remind people of that a lot, patients who are really emotional for whatever they're feeling. And I think, well, you're in the emergency department. I mean, of course you're scared. Of course you're terrified or you're in pain. I mean, it's okay to have these emotions, but you talk about emotions in the book too, and how, It just seems, I don't know, what's your experience with that? You know, it seems like people just, they almost feel like they're not supposed to have emotions. Like we're all supposed to be these robots who can't have feelings. And if God forbid they express those feelings, you know, something bad's going to happen. Right, what that means about them or what Mm -hmm. other people will think.
1: Yeah, I mean, thank goodness that there are people like you that can just even remind this guy about that and sort of give him the permission to think about it differently. Because yeah, what we see is, there can be a lot of layers. So sometimes there are those gender, the intersections of gender, of culture, of race that, you know, different messaging people have received throughout their lives of, of what emotions mean or who should see them. And we internalize those. I mean, that is, that is what stigma is. I talk about all the different kinds of stigma and, and where that comes from, you know, public institutional structural and then our own internalized stigma that has you know emanated from all of that other stuff it's a lot to unlearn and and I still find myself sometimes surprised almost when I'm having to really like back up and start at the very beginning of of giving people that emotional education and remember that not everyone has had that permission and so it's it's a big part of therapy is is that psychoeducation around you know, what emotions are, how we all have them, unlearning all of that old stuff that just weighs us down. And then allowing people to realize that once we find the ways to access those emotions, that's actually freedom on the other side of it. But it can take people, some people a while to, to buy into that because it's vulnerable
0: and scary. Right. And I also think this, shows up in our lives in so many ways. But as you were speaking, it made me think of even how as parents, we have all these expectations that society has placed on us, but also that we place on ourselves. And it's okay to get annoyed with your kid because they're annoying you you know but yes. we 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 feel that emotion and then we suddenly feel guilty about it and we think oh well, I'm not supposed to feel that way that's my kid or he's just being a kid or whatever but i think it's remembering that we are all humans first and being human is so amazing and fascinating but it's super yeah. complex and allowing yourself to feel all those things and be able to express them and finding people in your life who won't judge you for it too which I think therapy is great for you're an objective listener you don't have any judgment there so that's nice it's a nice outlet yeah. for people
1: and there's so much skill building and teaching too about, you know, I think the antidote to judgment is curiosity. And if we meet emotion, just to keep going with this, you know, example, if we meet emotion with judgment, whether it's I'm weak or I'm scared of your emotion, sometimes as parents, we might experience that too. If our kid is expressing some overwhelming emotion and it triggers something in us and we don't realize that we're having a reaction that's really fear based. But if we can meet instead of any sort of judgment, if we can just meet emotion with curiosity, I wonder what this is trying to tell me. I wonder what my kiddo is trying to tell me. It
0: just shifts our whole relationship to it. And I'm sure that's helpful with your spouse and partner too. anybody. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So back to the book, this is in the very beginning of the book. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly what we talk about at lasting impact. And it's this ultimate trifecta. Can you explain to the listeners what you mean by that term?
1: Yeah, so that's physical health, mental health and spiritual health. And to me it's non-negotiable. Those are part of all of us. It's holistic wellness. So yeah, I know that's that's y'all's mission too. You know, and in my practice that I own Sun Counseling and Wellness, it's we really try to be able to say yes to the whole person, mind, body, spirit, mind, body, soul. So that's talk therapy, mental health therapy, nutrition therapy, integrative wellness offerings because we're not just these isolated components and so what I launch into in the book is really we have more permission to access taking care of our physical health it's more normalized to go to your at least to go to your annual physical to you know if you hurt yourself get an accident to go and get it checked out we really need to treat mental health the same way uh proactively reactively all of the above and spiritual health, It means something different to everybody. So it's not just religion and a higher power even. To me, it's all of these components. When we acknowledge them all and make room to take care of all of them, we give ourselves the best chance of being fulfilled and balanced and whatever kind of growth or healing might mean to
0: us individually. Mm -hmm. And as you say, we all have mental health. It's a part of us. So we should be looking at it, embracing it, figuring out how to optimize it really just like we would with our physical health and our spiritual health. What does mental health look like? I mean, for people listening to this episode today, everybody has kind of their own opinion, but tell us in general, what does mental health look like?
1: Yeah. So I was just, I was thinking of an example of even the other day, you know, my dad was introducing my mom to somebody and, it, and he's like, not, not that she has mental health issues, but she's excited that that Juliet is here. It, it, even this guy who like, you know, has known my mission for so long and has allegedly read the book. You know, I think that we, we have equated mental health, mental health issues with what we probably mean is mental illness uh, and still super judgmentally. So I kind of like to think about it, even like this continuum. Mental health is not just disorder and struggle, just mm-hmm. like physical health, and I say this in the book, just like physical health is not just cancer and broken bones. <laughs> right. So our mental health is really, you know our our collection of our emotional, psychological, social well-being. It's how we think, feel, act, relate to others in the world, how we, take in and deal with emotions both comfortable and uncomfortable how we place value on certain things i mean it is it's it's foundational to everything and the interplay of how it affects you know physical health and spiritual health and all of that i mean it's
0: something that is not good or bad it just is well and we often say your health is more than just the absence of disease and yes. i think some people think of it like well i'm healthy and they just kind of mean well i don't have high blood pressure. I don't have high cholesterol. I haven't had a heart attack. I don't have cancer. And yes, to some degree that does equate to yes, you're healthy or maybe you're healthier than the individual who has those chronic diseases, but are you really healthy? Just because you don't have a disease mm-hmm. process, it doesn't mean you don't struggle with chronic stress or mm-hmm. poor sleep or poor relationships. So yeah. it's interesting. You mentioned the stigma, but even just changing the general societal viewpoint of this and opening that dialogue so we can have more open conversations about things like this is, is just so important, which is why, honestly, I love your book. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned that your personal mission, you mentioned the word mission when we first started and you say in the Mm -hmm. book that ending the stigma surrounding mental health and mental illness is your personal mission. So you did touch on this a little bit, but I thought this was really insightful when I read the book and you lay it out there where these stigmas come from. Can you just go through those again so that people listening can understand?
1: I have a few different things that I, first I go through the seven different types of stigma that have been defined. I, I mentioned a couple before, like public and institutional associated stigma and understand what the different types of stigma are. It's just like anything. We have that awareness. We have a better chance of challenging it, unlearning it, catching it when we we do it, do it our own implicit biases or calling someone out when when they might kind of fall into that as well. But the other big part is just the language we use. So I mean it's why I named the book and the podcast who you calling crazy. It's it's catchy, but it's really my attempt at taking back that language that that so often we use words that are pathologizing, stigmatizing, really dismissive. You know, I know what we mean, but I'm calling attention to the fact that sometimes when we do it so casually and flippantly, it, you know, it discredits people's experience who truly do struggle with a diagnosable mental illness. And again, it continues to perpetuate some of these other stigma. So other examples I give are around certain diagnoses. And I've seen this increase as people, more and more people are, are on social media. It's very, you'll see people use terms like OCD or PTSD just to reference something that's just kind of silly and casual and when we do that inappropriately again without knowing if someone truly meets the the diagnostic criteria for that disease disorder then we're really doing all of us an injustice because it shows our ignorance and our lack of understanding of what it is so a lot of ending stigma involves being much more aware of the
0: language that we use and having these types of podcasts and and this dialogue having your book out there it's great to just create some more awareness around this. I think as we, as a society, are more open to learning about mental health and mental illness over time, it will become less stigmatized. It will become more accepted. And hopefully that will open a lot of doors for people to come forward and and ask for help.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. When stigma keeps people from accessing the support they need, it disempowers Folks, it it you know it makes people feel like they don't have the agency or the permission. It makes them question and judge themselves, and and so again, when we can, this isn't to shame anybody because I do too. I say things sometimes. I'm like, ooh, that was not right. That was cringy. It's it's just for us to be more aware of it because just like any important work that we that anyone over time has ever done to to affect change. It starts with these little, little, quote unquote, little things of just being able to make sure that you're speaking about it appropriately or calling attention to it for others to do the same.
0: Mm -hmm. And understanding what some of these terms mean or these diagnoses or things that Mm -hmm. people are struggling with. Before we were getting ready to talk, I was trying to think of something in the kind of physical medical world that was really scary in the past. And then as we learned more about it, it has become very understood and even made way for research and things like that. And I was talking to my husband about it and he said, well, seizures, you know, people with epilepsy Years and years ago, it was thought to be, well, you were a witch or you were possessed or something like that. And, you know, these kids who were having febrile seizures, which we now understand to be super common and very manageable. And it just took education and time. But I just, again, that was one physical or medical thing that I thought of wow, we went from thinking people were possessed or they were witches. And now we understand, oh my gosh, this is a complete entire neurologic disease process that we now understand, but how wide and broad that shift has become. And I hope it's not that extreme with mental illnesses, but it just highlights how when we are ignorant of the facts and we don't understand things. We're so quick to be fearful of it and create our own judgment around it. And so I really hope conversations like this help people to understand, look, this isn't some big scary thing. Let's see how I can understand it a little bit better. Oh,
1: I love that, that you've drawn those comparisons because that, that is how, so many things are, you know, we, we tend to meet things like, like you said, with fear and judgment, but and people like data and facts, so I'll throw this out there that, you know, one in five adults will experience a mental illness each year, one in six youth. And I guarantee you that's underreported. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so much again, of this mission of the message in this book and is that this is not just other people. You know, so as we again continue to learn more about this, but also open up to the idea that all of us are impacted by it, whether it's us ourselves or people we know, it's
0: it's it makes it less scary and othered. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about values. We even have some episodes about kind of core values, your personal foundation, your guiding principles, and you have a whole chapter about that in the book. So, from a therapist point of view, I'm curious, why are values so important in our lives? how does that play Mm. into our mental health?
1: Yeah. Talk about something else that lights me up. I think values work is so integral to the therapeutic process. I introduce it with every client and we, we use it in the beginning and then at various touch points throughout our work together. But I think we don't, we aren't asked to stop and really consider our values enough. And so our values really guide us. They guide the decisions we make, our goals and our dreams. They, they guide our communication styles. You know, I just think that we don't pay enough attention to them intentionally. So how it fits in the therapy world is when we are not living aligned to our actually, you know, our actual true personal values, then that's when we can feel that imbalance. We can feel unfulfilled, dissatisfied, even just have like more symptomology, you know, et cetera. So when I say it has to be our own personal values, this is where a lot of the therapeutic work is. And I think the example I give in the book is around body image and eating disorder clients that we work with, where people come to realize that they have been operating from a value, which is truly a societal value of our diet culture that says, I have to look a certain way that there is just one ideal, all of the things, and they have been really living by that value. And that has been contributing to overexercise, disordered eating symptoms, self-loathing, all of the things. And when we can help them recognize, like, wait a second, that's not actually my personal value. I adopted that value and have been carrying it as truth. Hmm. We can unlearn that and we can replace that with something that's an actual value for that person, which might be you know, something that may seemingly not be connected, but it might be adventure and yeah this person can then use adventure as kind of their guiding light and their north star and 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 now they're going out and doing things and seeking you know spontaneity in ways that they never were because the disorder was holding them back so that's just a, a small example of how it how it can show up we can also use values to help you know shape the the treatment goals that we come come up with together so if you're saying that you're coming in here because you don't have great friendships, then we understand one of your values is probably connection, for example. And so we we can gauge progress and treatment too by recognizing how much closer we are living to that value,
0: uh, how much energy, attention, and focus
1: a particular value is getting.
0: Ah, oh, Those are great examples. You're You're speaking my language right now. I mean, yes. I think it's so true that we don't, well, first of all, a lot of us don't just stop. That's the first part. It's just right. stopping, taking a pause. I tell my kids I use the term "take a beat." So if they start to get kind of riled up or something, I'll just say "take a beat," which just means like let's just stop for a second mm-hmm. and then take a breath. And so we don't do that a lot of us, unfortunately, myself included. You know, we're all yeah. we're all human, as we said in the beginning. Yeah. We're all human, and we're all guilty of that. Mm-hmm. exactly. But when we do stop. As you mentioned, really contemplating these things, contemplating what are my values? What are my core values? And not just contemplating, like write them down, make a list. It's a great exercise that we encourage our clients to do this who go through our programs is actually stop, sit with this for a little while and see what feels right and see what feels like it aligns with you. Because that's when you can start finding those mismatches between your values and your behaviors, your intentions and your actions because when you feel mismatched is when you feel you really feel it. And I I think the pandemic for me, at least it forced me to kind of stop and take that pause because I think a lot of us were feeling really overwhelmed by just all the external stuff. And then it brewed up a lot of internal stuff. And if you didn't stop and take a pause, then maybe you're feeling it now, now that the, yes. the dust has settled, so to speak, and it's that moment or that act of taking that pause and sitting with it, thinking and contemplating what those values are, is, is hugely important. So I love the examples yeah. you gave and the way you described it. Yeah, and I would also say, like, the reason I do this multiple times with clients is, is that our values will
1: shift, mm-hmm. kind of dependent on our, you know, the season of life, who we're in relationship with, our own self concept as it's shifting. So it's not a one and done activity either. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and it's, but it can be so powerful when you recognize like, gosh, that's actually something that I've been carrying from my family of origin or from peers or, and then it's important to, to dig into how you define those values. And lots of people, if I lined up 10 people, they all might have a different definition of success, for example. So it's, it's also really important to get clear on what it means to you. And then that can also help you stay in your lane when you kind of get caught up in some social comparison stuff or whatever it might be, because you have to understand that everyone has their own value system that they're defining uniquely for them as well. And that's so freeing too, because it's like, okay, they get to define success that way, but I'm, I'm doing me and this, this is aligned for me and that's
0: enough. If we can approach ourselves in a non-judgmental way, when we're analyzing these things and showing ourselves some grace and some self-compassion, then it helps us to be a little more open and forgiving to others as well couple of things you talk about in the book that I just wanted to bring up, because I think, again, you mentioned kind of social media and gosh, the world is changing so quickly around us and who knows what things will be like in another 10, 20 years from now. But this phrase in the last maybe decade or so, and probably perpetuated by social media is this negative self-talk, or we we use that term self-talk. And I mean, I get it. You take it literally. It's how you talk to yourself, but comment a little bit, if you will, on how self-talk can help you or potentially hurt you. Yep. So it's our inner dialogue. And what what's important
1: is that we often aren't really paying attention to it. So so much of what the work that we do in therapy is helping people learn to observe that dialogue, because then we get to decide if it's helpful or not. (laughs) But if we're not really paying attention to the noise, and let's say it's rooted in some negative core belief we have about ourselves let's say it's you know i'm not good enough then and our and then our self talk matches that but i'm not really paying attention i'm just letting this script or narrative run in my head all the time that's collecting evidence of me not being good enough and i'm giving myself a hard time about it i'm not self compassionate at all when we can learn to observe it and catch those thoughts we just des- we can decide what to do with it we have much more agency over it than we might think So then I can meet it again with curiosity. I can meet it with self-compassion. I can sometimes directly challenge it. I can sometimes replace it with positive self-talk. Now I'm always a little hesitant there because we also have this thing of toxic positivity in our culture. And so I'm never perpetuating a message around good vibes only and just think happy thoughts. It is not that simple. And there is research around being able to catch negative self-talk and replace it. But I talk with clients about don't just replace it with something cheesy. Like if I, if I re- truly feel like I'm not good enough and then I just say, I catch it and then I say like, I'm the best superstar. Like that's, I don't b- actually believe that. It doesn't work like that. So how I start with clients and myself is meeting it with some neutrality or add some qualifiers in there. I'm learning to believe that I'm enough as I am. Oh, like that is so much softer, kinder, open. And then the way I also talk about in the book is how much our thoughts can impact our feelings and our behavior. So if I'm operating from the thought, I'm not good enough, my feelings are going to be pretty, you know, shame filled. And then my behavior is going to be pretty meek and timid and anxious. But if I can meet that with, I'm a learning to believe I'm enough as I am. My feeling is maybe I'm still a bit hesitant, but I'm, I'm hopeful. And then my behavior is I take action and I show up and do the thing that I might have otherwise avoided. How do you catch it though?
0: If you keep talking to yourself, how do you catch it? There's no one else calling you out on it.
1: Yes. And I'm I'm so glad you asked that because I don't mean to make it sound easy at all. So it's a practice just like, you know, again, with physical health, if you, you can't just, you know, go do some try to do a yoga inversion once and like you're good to go. It's a practice over time. It's it's the same with our mental health and things like this. So there are skills throughout in therapy that can help us learn how to take that pause as you said, how to slow down, how to mindfully observe what's going on in our bodies and our heads, how to externalize the thoughts. So I think another example I gave in the book is, you know, I'm I'm anxious. Is very different. That's me over identifying and and kind of holding on to this thing. If I can catch that and say, okay, yeah, I'm feeling a little uneasy. I'm feeling a tightness in my chest and throat. Uh, and then I say, I'm having I'm having an anxious thought. There's like one step removed from it a little bit. Then I notice that I'm having an anxious thought. There's even another step removed. And now I'm observing this anxiety instead of embodying it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's a a quick answer. It just really simply put, we have to learn to slow down and ask, just simply ask, what what am I saying to myself? Give yourself the chance because you will be able to identify it if you allow yourself that agency of understanding that you do have more control over it than you think. Mm -hmm. So what is it that I'm saying to myself? Maybe journaling could help you also
0: kind of flush some of that out. We hold on to a lot of those things as part of our identity and really taking them on as roles instead of just labels that we place on ourselves. You know, I'm anxious. Well, Yeah. That's just a label. That's just a description of something. It's not who you are. And you bring up practice. That is, Mm -hmm. it's such a challenge for a lot of people and myself included, but Mm -hmm. really understanding that you have to practice these things. They don't happen overnight. I take care of a lot of patients in the emergency department with panic attacks, and I had my own experience with anxiety in the past. So they're kind of my people. I really enjoy taking care of those patients. Sitting down, spending the time with them, and I get to connect with them and explain the process and what's going on in their bodies, and saying, You're not crazy. And this is not in your head. This is a physiological thing that's happening. And oftentimes I'll give them some breathing exercises to practice or counting exercises to practice while they breathe if they feel that sensation of panic coming on. And the analogy I use about practice is I say, Look, if you're a baseball player, you're not just going to hit a grand slam in the world series at the first try. you have to practice and practice and practice your swinging, practice your stance, practice your mindset, all of those things. And you have to do it all the time, even when you don't need to hit the grand slam. So I tell them, practice the deep breathing when you don't need it. Commit to five minutes in the morning to do this exercise. And I'll give them examples that they can take. And That way, when you do need it, you've practiced it enough to be able to call upon that tool to say, okay, now I'm recognizing this feeling now. Oh, wait. Yeah. I've been practicing my swing. I can hit the grand slam now because I've been working on it. I mean, our whole life is a practice. All right. So I feel like I could talk to you forever. Seriously, this is so nice. So thank you. (laughs) But we talk a little bit about showing yourself some grace and having Mm -hmm. compassion. And one of the things that comes up is Mm self-care, taking care of yourself, allowing to put yourself first and recognizing when you need that. If someone is listening to this and they're thinking, well, I don't have time to get a pedicure every week or go get a massage. And I don't have time for that stuff. What's some advice or some simple tips or things that someone could focus on that are kind of self-care involved?
1: Yeah. So first you got to understand what self-care actually means because it has been another super watered down buzzword when it comes to mental health. So I cannot stress enough how necessary it is. And again, it's another non-negotiable thing. So just how you were just saying that about practicing, I love that you tell your patients that because I talk with clients about that all the time. The stuff that we're learning in here, don't just save it for when we're together. Don't just save it for when you're escalated and dysregulated. You need to train your body, train your mind and, and self-care and active self-care can be doing those things that we've talked about practicing. So when you understand that it self-care is about tending to your mental health and doing those things that will protect you and help you be resilient when the inevitable hardships or discomfort come up, you you start to recognize that it is non-negotiable. We've got to unlearn that self-care is selfish that it's indulgent. It's neither of those things. It is the whole saying of, you know, you can't fill somebody else's cup until you fill your own or put on your own oxygen mask before you put on somebody else's. That's what it's about. (laughs) So it can be things like spa days and golf outings. And it can also be the free day-to-day proactive things like drinking enough water, prioritizing sleep, saying no to something that does not feel values aligned asking for help. Those can all be acts of self-care. Those are acts of self-care. Yeah. And taking that pause, (laughs) taking a moment. That's that's right. Right. And self-care can be, we want it to be, we want to use it proactively and reactively. Uh, And so I think that's another important thing for people to know.
0: Tell me what you mean by that. Elaborate a little more.
1: So we tend to, to, again, we use it reactively like Okay, I am burned out. Mm-hmm. What am I gonna do to take care of myself? I'm gonna go to the I am gonna go to the spa or I am gonna take a vacation. Again, those things are great and they are rejuvenating. But when we fold in self-care into our daily routine, that's proact, those are proactive measures. Mm-hmm. So that maybe we can actually prevent the buildup of working toward burnout. Maybe totally. we can
0: actually keep ourselves more regulated. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's what can we be doing now? that's our whole message at lasting impact. What can you do now that's helping your future self the most? And, that's um, and that's yeah. a great, yeah, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. So if someone is out there and they may be contemplating therapy or finding a therapist, but that can be intimidating for a lot of people. And they think I'm not really sure yeah. that's what I need. What do you say to them? What's the message that you'd like for them to hear? Sure. I,
1: Recognize that therapy is just one path to wellness. There are a lot of access and systemic issues, and there are a lot of resources to make it accessible and affordable for people. So I, I believe that there is a therapist out there for everyone. The number one predictor of success in therapy is how the client perceives the quality of the relationship with the therapist. So do your due diligence on the front end to try to get a feel for the therapist's style to make sure that it's a good fit. And you might, you might have some of those thoughts, you know, I've got friends to talk to, I don't need a therapist or you know, millions of things that we say to ourselves to try to maybe talk ourselves out of this that again, that might be entrenched in stigma and that's really what part two of the book is about is, is trying to pull back the curtain on what therapy is and what therapists are really like and give you some insight into why it works. And I fully believe that it does. And, and I also list a bunch of websites where you can search for a therapist. I give some scripts about, you know, what to ask in a meet and greet with therapists. And I think you can come to therapy at any point in your life, just because you're curious all the way to if you have a crisis and anything
0: in between. Love it. I've yeah. had so much fun talking with you. I know. Thank you so much. Of course. This has been great. So where can people find you and where can they find your book, which I, again, highly recommend. Thank you. So I, I'm most active on Instagram
1: at yep, I go to therapy. And then the book is on Amazon and it's in a couple local bookshops. And then I have some free resources on my website, who you call and crazy.com that pair with the book, but also can stand alone, including a values clarification, like we talked about. And so I'm always happy to, to connect with people via DM or emailing me and finding our practice at sun counseling and wellness as well. And, and making sure that I can answer people's questions and connect them with a therapist. And we're on this journey together. So I'm grateful to have
0: conversations like this for sure. We sure are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julia. I really appreciate your time, your energy, this conversation. Mm -hmm. It's been really helpful for me and I think helpful for our listeners as well. As I mentioned, go grab her book called Who You Calling Crazy. It's on Amazon, So thanks again. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for your time and your energy as always. If you have any topic suggestions or ideas, feel free to send us a message at info at lastingimpactwellness.com and visit us on the web to check out some of our programs that we have for individuals and organizations at lastingimpactwellness.com. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. Let's be well together.